Hello, the internet, and welcome to the Screen and Needle podcast, where my compadres and I get to select one film, one album, and a top five list each week to be reviewed and discussed over a pint or two. I hope you'll join us for a drink and some daft chat about pop culture. My name is Will Holden, and today I am joined by Mark Wall. How are you doing, buddy? I'm all right, mate. I'll mention a little top tip for the week. Got it of all places from Facebook, which, you know, we all know Facebook's horrendous, but just for this alone, it deserves some props. I just saw a random comment from someone saying, uh, Taskmaster New Zealand is on YouTube. And I would heavily recommend that both of you immediately <laughs> go and watch it. I watched some of the American one when they when they started that, and that was horrendously bad. Was it? Oh, yeah, yeah. like the contestants were mean. Like it really lost the <laughs> it really lost, lost the whole the ethos of the show. <laughs> We'd reckon the Kiwis are nailing it. Yeah, I love it. The host is a bit kind of straight. Like, he's no Greg Davies, but the assistant is great, and the contestants are great. Like, there's a guy in particular called Lee Hart who just cracks me up, man. Every single episode is hilarious. Anyway, sorry. I just... Uh, I mean, I feel like you've set a precedent there. You're going to need a top tip top, at the... Top tip every, every uh, week. At the top yeah. of every episode, yeah. Right. So, uh, with the top tip done, the weekly top tip, it's time to move on to our other weekly... You're not saying hello to me. Yeah, you, you didn't. Genuinely, <laughs> genuinely insulted. Oh, my apologies. I uh, I got completely lost in, in the conversation. Well, with me also is Andy Melbourne. How are you, Chief? Oh, terrible now. Let's move Good. on. <laughs> uh, okay, so let us talk about the film. Uh, this was your pick, Andy, and it is Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond, featuring a very special contractually obliged mention of Tony Clifton. Not sure you needed the full title, but thanks I for think using it. I think it's worthy of it. Uh, it's made in 2017. Uh, it was directed by Chris Smith, if I suppose a documentary can be considered directed in the same way. Uh, it stars Jim Carrey, Danny DeVito, I mean, as themselves, uh, and many others. A behind-the-scenes look at how Jim Carrey adopted the persona of idiosyncratic comedian Andy Kaufman on the set of Man on the Moon. When I heard I had the part, I was looking at the ocean, and that's the moment when Andy came back to make his movie. Hello. What happened after was out of my control. Andy, that's enough, perfect. I don't like it. I want to do one more. Andy felt it was necessary to stay in the character. He's exactly the way Andy was. It's totally surreal. And this crazy melodrama started happening all over the place. Andy, tell us about your choice. I watched this when it first came out. 
When did it come out? 2017. Yeah, I think I watched Man on the Moon and I really liked it as a film. Um, and I decided to do a, an episode around documentaries. So I was just looking for one to, to pick. And yeah, I watched this as soon as it came out and I've not seen it since. Uh, and I remember it being, yeah, but super fun, but also pretty, yeah, pretty interesting. So I thought it was worth a uh, a little second look at. Absolutely, Marco, you got any any thoughts? Well, Andy recommended that I watched Man on the Moon as well, so inevitably I, I haven't. <laughs> I was I was um, on the fence. Like I think it would make more sense as a documentary to have watched Man on the Moon, but I'm kind of I was kind of interested to hear on your hear your kind of yeah. thoughts without having watched it. So I'm cool with that. Yeah, and I, I think I got enough of the gist of it. I would still be interested in watching it. Um as for the documentary, I, I thought it was okay. Didn't love it. I thought it there was some interesting stuff. I think the the central point of him doing the sort of method acting slash performance are is kind of interesting but far more interesting is just the kind of insight and well insight from himself to Jim Carrey I suppose um and I think it gets a bit mixed up at times like you know I didn't really understand the the primary intent of the documentary it was kind of like well he he was filming himself doing it at the time and it is kind of interesting. It's sort of a little obnoxious. I've got several comments about that. But yeah, the, the more interesting stuff was how he just sort of, you know, was saying how it was an escape, basically, from being Jim Carrey. Which is interesting. I just don't know that it goes enough into that because of its main focus on the Andy Kaufman stuff. So yeah, it, it's, it was an interesting watch. I did enjoy it, but I've, I've definitely got issues with it. Alrighty. Documentaries are not generally my thing. So I went in with uh, trying to have zero expectations whatsoever and take it as it came. And I ended up enjoying it quite a bit. I do agree with you, Mark. I think there's no, if sometimes documentaries do, it doesn't have a sort of plot, it doesn't have a, a direction, I guess. But I found um, Jim Carrey in particular. Like incredibly watchable and really enjoyable. Uh, the talking head moments with Jim Carrey were probably my favorite bits. And for me, at least, I think it transitioned quite nicely from the method acting into sort of more broadly what that meant to Jim Carrey and what effects it had on him and the people around him. I don't have much in the way of critiquing it as a documentary like how it's been put together so I don't know enough about that to, to say but it kept me engaged it's pretty short just over an hour and a half long um, and I felt it kind of moved from bit to bit fairly seamlessly for me yeah there's a little part of me like particularly having watched it again that wonders whether any of it or maybe quite a bit of it was staged I don't know if that ever crossed your mind. It didn't really, but that's interesting. Um, yeah, particularly like second time. It's not, Jim Carrey's incredibly believable, I think, and like very open. You kind of get the idea, like he mentions it, that the reason this has been made like so long afterwards is because 
the Universal who made it made Man on the Moon and didn't want to release the footage because Jim Carrey looked like an arsehole. And a lot of the stuff, like Jim Carrey seems very honest and open and happy to like talk about that stuff, even if it shines him in a bad light and sort of makes some attempt to explain some of it, even though it's Jim Carrey and it, parts of it are absolute nonsense and parts of it are kind of just pretentious. And um, But it's, it's some of the other like people's reactions to things, like the amount of times you see Danny DeVito on the like real footage just having a knowing nod to camera and I don't know the, the odd scene like where when they're in the trailer and he's having his hair and makeup done and his like the guy playing his stepdad I couldn't remember if it was the guy playing his stepdad or whether it was actually like Andy Kaufman's dad I think in that case it was stepdad. the guy playing his stepdad yeah. Yeah. sort of became his dad for a moment yeah, I, I don't know. Like It sort of stretched my believability. And I thought about it at the end and thought, like, it doesn't really make any difference to me at all. Like, the reason I like Man on the Moon is that I think it, it was the first time I'd heard about Andy Kaufman as a person. And after watching it, I went and watched loads of, like, YouTube things about him. And I like people that just do their own madcap thing, whether anybody likes it or not, <laughs> you know. And, um, yeah, so I really like the idea of Andy Kaufman. It just, I don't know, staging a documentary seems like a very Andy Kaufman thing to do. So it didn't take away my enjoyment at all. But, yeah, there are bits of it where I'm, I don't know. I don't it know. does. I mean, I don't know whether it's all true or not. I think thinking on those bits, the reason I guess I bought into it was because they were just on set with him for so long and him just not responding to anything else that I can see people adapting around it and just thinking in order to get things done, I've got to play your game and meet you on your level. And they might not have bought into it in the same way, but I can buy that that's how people would speak to him. And as you say, with Danny DeVito in particular, there was one moment where, what's his other character called? Tony, Tony Clifton. He's dressed as Tony Clifton and makes a joke about like, I do all the work, but Jim Carrey will get all of the glory. And Danny DeVito, like, obviously well in on the joke, laughs along with it. But then there's another bit where he kind of replays Andy Kaufman's admittance to his kind of group of friends that he's got cancer. But he's doing it not for the purpose of the footage, but for the purpose of being Andy Kaufman. At that point, DeVito's like, I don't want anything to do with this. And seeing those swings in attitude made me feel it was believable like sometimes people would just put up with it and sort of roll their eyes and, and play along and sometimes people would just sort of say no this is this is the line and you've met it so I, I guess I did buy into it I've only watched it the once and I assume you bought into it the first time around but um yeah I didn't question it yeah no I, I totally get that as well like there's so many bits from the like speaking ed you know parts with Jim Carrey it's not just that he's believable, it's that everything he's saying sort of makes sense in like terms of his life. Like he kind of lives as a recluse now, doesn't he? Right. I don't know. It's a it's a weirdly sad idea. Like I think there's bits of the documentary that are actually sad. Like the idea of him being a young kid with ridiculously high dreams and um and that he almost achieved his dreams in in one year, very early into his career, like made three of the biggest 
biggest films of that year and was like such a star and uh, that he just it wasn't even it, it seemed to be that he just had nothing else to aim for he's just like well i'm like this is what i wanted i've got it what do i do now nailed it, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah the sort of bits i actually thought were quite sad in the little like talking head bits with with jim carrey definitely well he seems like quite a mentally troubled guy to be honest which is why i find it like a little i don't know i find it's just a little bit troubling to me he's just talking about all these deep things and it's all quite worrying when you put it into the context of what he's talking about and that there's no other kind of people talking it's very much just jim carrey talking about himself basically which i'm fine but you know he, he was basically just saying, and this is what I said, this is the interesting bit to me. His, like, as you say, height of his fame and everything. He was saying, well, basically I was unhappy, which you hear from like a lot of comedians and stuff, you know? Yeah, the idea um, of like, if this doesn't bring me happiness, what will? Like, <laughs> Yeah, indeed. But then, you know, his kind of escape from that was doing this movie where, you know, primarily it just focuses on being a bit of an arsehole to everyone. I mean, I know there's exceptions with like the family members and stuff, but I found that troubling as well. There's like a scene where, you know, interestingly, they don't actually have this on film, but he talks about a scene where he actually speaks to Andy Kaufman's real life daughter as Andy Kaufman for like an hour. And that bothered me. Like all all the content, I just, I don't know. It just, it everything felt off to me. It just felt a bit wrong. And... You know, I just don't really like the fact that, you know, with the Jerry Lawler stuff, for example, he says at one point, you know, the actual Andy Kaufman was essentially like quite a nice guy. Yeah. Um, And Jim Carrey wasn't. So he's trying to inhabit this character he claims to know inside out and everything. But he's not really being the guy. He's just being a weird interpretation of the guy. I'd argue that like, so I think like that particular bit with Jerry Lawler like feels like a misstep in terms of like Jim Carrey trying because that isn't the way that Andy Kaufman reacted to an identical situation but I think most of the rest of the time it's not that he doesn't but 90% of the moments where he's being a complete arsehole to people is when he's being Tony Clifton which is kind of what Tony Clifton was as a character and Andy Kaufman did it as well in, in certain parts of his career where he sort of the wrestling thing like predominantly is where he's like selling himself as the bad guy there's huge parts of his career where he is very likable but there's also moments where he is like the entire comedy is trying to come from the fact that he's not likable and so I don't think Jim Carrey sort of misses the mark except for maybe on the Jerry Lawler bit where clearly they were like Andy Kaufman and Jerry Lawler were friends and they were putting this act on together. Whereas Jim Carrey, instead of befriending him and trying to put the act on together, like just forced it in public. Hmm. I think I agree with your points, Mark. Like I found some of those bits troubling, particularly with the family. Oh, for sure. I'm not not disagreeing with that at all. Like they're uncomfortable. Their kind of reactions to him and his reaction back, like, I think the normal thing would be to say, like, you know, I'm not Andy, right? <laughs> you know, this is a, but 
while I found it troubling, I didn't find it a negative to the documentary. I think my viewpoint is that if it's fiction, then I think I'd be upset. I don't know. It depends how it's played out, really. But I just see it as that is what happened and troubling or otherwise. It's not a negative for me. As far as the film is concerned, it was weird and it did make me feel weird. Um, but I guess like with a lot of the sort of much sadder bits, there's a bit where he talks, I think again, when he's dressed as Tony and he talks about Jim Carrey, like talking about himself. And that's a very kind of revealing and quite, quite sad bit. And there are, there are some, quite a few kind of downers in the film, but I guess I took it all in stride as being a documentary. Like it is, you just seeing what happens like it or lump it i guess yeah agreed. Mm. like I, I i agree with you mark like i think the idea of jim carrey saying like i you know i'm not Andy kaufman just kind of goes against it's the antithesis that, of what he's doing I, I, yeah that, that I, he that he just felt like for however long it took to make the film like six months he just he was andy kaufman like it, it, it's almost as if Jim Carrey was selling it as if like he couldn't cope being Jim Carrey anymore and needed a break from that. And the break that he found was being Andy Kaufman in the film. But I, I like, I completely agree. Like that's not a negative on the documentary, like whether you, whether that makes you feel uncomfortable or not. Like that's the way that Jim Carrey portrayed himself during that little period. So yeah, no, for sure. And that, as, as I say, that that is the interesting stuff for me is that he, and it doesn't really go into it very much, you know, like why he felt he needed to do that. I mean, there's there's bits and pieces. He's got like loads of philosophizing about like, you know, since you're a child and everything, every, everything that is uh, part of your upbringing is sculpting your outlook on life and your beliefs and all of this. And he wanted to like completely fight against that. Um, it's it's kind of interesting that I don't really know that it it really goes anywhere with it, and it doesn't de- delve into it enough for me. That's that's the problem. It's it's sort of half. Well, here's what happened when I was Andy Kaufman, and there's then a little bit of well, let's delve into the psyche of Jim Carrey, and that latter stuff is way more interesting to me personally. I don't. I, I guess as a subject like Andy Kaufman, I haven't seen the film, but he he wasn't that appealing to me. I didn't find him particularly funny. Um, and yeah, I agree. It, it's cool to, you know, be different. Fair play. It, it just didn't really appeal to me, I guess. Yeah, I get that. I, I don't think he's, for watching a bit of his stuff years ago now, I don't think he's somebody that I would have loved if I watched it like at the time as well. I do think he's genuinely like funny at times. And yeah, I don't know. I, I just, I really like people that try and do something like fundamentally different within the area that they're in. Like he, he could have easily, I mean, he was earning great money from taxi and things like that. Like he, he, he could have had a very solid career doing that. And it obviously wasn't what he wanted to do. I, I sort of, I don't know, I have respect more than kind of love Andy Kaufman as a person. I think I'm probably in a similar boat. Like, I think uh, it's admirable, as you say, that he carved his own path regardless of success or getting him in trouble. But I think some of his comedy is 
sort of extremely ironic to the point that it becomes a bit indistinguishable of him just being sexist or, you know, whatever yeah, they, kind of his chosen li- villain persona is. They literally reference that at times. Like, who's the guy that he works with? I want to say Zuma. Oh, Bob. Bob Smooder. Smooder. I can't remember what bit it is that they're talking about. And Danny DeVito says, like, it's, oh, it's when um, Bob is being Tony Clifton and, like, Andy Kaufman appears. And he says, like, you're literally doing a joke for two people. And I, I think that was kind of his ethos. Like, if he found it funny and he wanted to do it, absolutely regardless of the fact whether his audience would get the joke or not. Yeah. The, um, the throwaway comment that you made at the start, Will, of, uh, about directed by. Yeah. Christmas on quite a lot particularly recently i think he was the director for tiger king okay yeah and he at least worked on um the fire documentary i don't know if you've seen right. either of those I but the fire was i have, really, I have, really good, I have seen tiger king but um yeah it was more from a position of of uh not being very familiar overall with documentary making and I imagine it tends to be more in the editing process. Like you just capture what you capture and then you turn it into something would be my guess. But I guess so, but like I don't know that well, yeah. You can't really plan what you're gonna what you're gonna get. But anyway, that's no, again off. No, off you to... don't, but I I just kinda meant that I think like I don't know, maybe they had loads of raw footage to work with for this, but there isn't a huge amount of it. Uh, and and even the talking head bits, like they're not planned at all. Obviously, like you might decide what you want to try and get from from Jim Carrey, but he clearly goes like wildly off base. Yeah, <laughs> all of the time. So I don't know. It just seems like a very different skill, but I, I definitely don't think it's any less of a like creative input that he has into a documentary that he's making as opposed to a director who's directing a film. Yeah, sure. No, that's fair. I felt that it was very controlled by Jim Carrey, to be honest. I don't know. I mean, because it doesn't really show him being led question-wise. No. Um, I don't know who like produced it or anything, but the fact of the matter is he was the guy who put all the footage together in the first place, of which the majority of the movie was drawn from. Um, and I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, there weren't really any talking head segments with anyone other than Jim Carrey. So no, that, that whole thing about how it affects like other people and stuff. I mean, again, it's, it pays lip service to it. It's, it's barely there. Like it doesn't really delve into it at all. It's just, it's just the Jim Carrey show, which as I say, I guess my, it's the most interesting thing about it. And also the most annoying thing about it. Cause I, I came out <laughs> of it, not really knowing any more about him to be honest it's just you know i guess that's fair why yeah, why really. is why was yeah why yeah because it, it sort of delves into it starts to say well i was at the top of the world i had achieved everything i wanted to achieve but i needed an escape i was unhappy or whatever well okay well, what's happened since then like you know what how did that form in the first place it just doesn't go into it. He's just dropping all these huge bombs, but like, there's no fuse. I, I yeah, I kind of disagree with that. Like, I kind of feel like the only thing it does is kind of delve into 
uh, Jim Carrey. Like he mentions other stuff as well, like doing the Truman Show and how it just felt like a reflection of his life. But like he was Truman and he was like just permanent, mm-hmm. permanently being watched by others and having no escape. And he doesn't talk about a huge amount of time, like post that, I guess, post that period of his life. He does a little bit because he which again seems like a slightly sad bit because he keeps talking about like how well he's doing now and like his philosophy on life now and that sort of thing. But it seems like half convincing that he's kind of still just hiding from the world a little bit and kind of can't face doing that. Interesting perspective. And that's what I'm saying. I I would have just liked more on that. As you say, there's mentions of other films and stuff, but it never goes into them. Just the focus felt like it's it's too all over the place for me. Like I I think it you know it's called Jim and Andy. I, it it should have just been Jim. Obviously, the Andy stuff is a is a is a big part of it. It's the entire part of it. I can't. It's I can, not though, is it? Like it's just like because what is that taken in and of itself? It's just right a a method actor. Okay. Like you know, I don't know what I'm supposed to take from it. I don't know. Maybe it, you've maybe you've heard more stories of like method actors than me, but I, I found that like super interesting. Like the idea of, I mean, like I say, I don't know how long a period it was like based over, but that he just like it seemed to be from Jim Carrey's point of view that he it wasn't him just sort of embodying this character, like he. He almost seemed to believe that he was. Yeah, indeed. And uh, like, is that common? Kind of, is that common? No, no, like, no that's, that's not. <laughs> that's not common. It's kind of scary, and it just doesn't delve into it at all. It's just like something he does, and it doesn't really delve into into why, other than it's just well, I wanted an an escape, and he obviously liked this person. He was a fan. Yeah, I feel like the entire film delves into it. I feel like that is what the film is. I don't know what more depth you wanted them to go into on that. Like it doesn't, it's an hour and a half kind of focusing on that, isn't it? I, I, I didn't get it. You know, why was, why was he depressed at the height of his fame when he'd achieved everything? I, you know, it, it doesn't go into it at all. It's just like, it. yeah, I achieved all this success and then suddenly I decided I needed an escape. That, that's yeah, they that's pretty much all it says. They didn't bring him happiness. I mean, I don't know what more you need than that. Like, it, it, not sitting down on a like shrinks sofa and explaining himself. Like, I don't know if he knows the reason why that doesn't bring him happiness. Like, why does anyone who achieves success not find instant like gratification for that? Like, I don't. I don't know. But it, it clearly, he thought achieving everything that he wanted would make his life complete and it didn't that's a a well told story isn't it yeah but it's, it's a story that's told in in one line and i guess i disagree i just i didn't get the additional stuff out of it it just felt it just felt kind of empty to me right should we score yeah let's go for some scorage um as, I, as it's rarely me, I'll opt to go first, if that's all right with you guys. Hoisted by my own petard a little bit. This is why I'd like to give a half score, um, but it's my rule. So I'm going to give it a strong seven. I enjoyed it 
quite a bit. Uh, like I said, I found Jim Carrey very, very uh, compelling to watch. It's not one of my favourite documentaries of all time, but that list is fairly slim as it stands. I don't know whether I'd watch it again, but I, I perfectly enjoyed the time and found it pretty interesting. Yeah, quickly, I'll go seven as well. Um, similar things. I felt like I was defending more than criticising in that, so I didn't get into many criticisms. I do have a couple, uh, and I do agree with you, Mark, as well, that it feels a bit scattered in terms of a documentary and that there are other things that could have sort of filled in the world a little bit, but a bit of me thinks every time you do that, you take more time away from June Carey, and that was the the bits I was really invested in. But, yeah, I really enjoyed it second time around, and, yeah, good strong seven. Yeah, and I'm struggling between a five and a six. Um, it was like pretty easy to watch. I, I kind of enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, five. I don't think it's a great documentary. Um, there's there's nothing remarkable about the way it's put together, and it kind of hints at inter- really interesting stuff with him but as I say my my issue is it just didn't really go into them enough for me and the stuff it did focus on more was was less interesting so I mean five feels a little harsh but you know it's instinct and it we don't do half so <laughs> and I think you've you've set your reasoning out so I don't completely agree but I think you've you've set it out perfectly well so that's it justifies it indeed all righty so we shall move on then Andy, to your album pick, which is Implosiva Apranonce by Pomplamoose. Lovely pronunciation. Thank you. Not that impossible. Tell us about your album pick. Yeah, Pomplamoos I listen to on YouTube most of the time, as opposed to good old Spotify where I get most of my music. Yeah, I think they're like super talented. I wanted to pick something that I wanted to listen to. Like I had ideas of interesting things that we could review, but after the last couple of weeks, I just wanted to listen to something I wanted to listen to. <laughs> so uh so I picked this. I think this I think all of these are like French 1920s slash 30s pop songs that they've covered. I couldn't find very much about the album, if I'm honest. I tried to do a bit of research. And some of them on Spotify at least have another name. I, think I don't know if that's just the performer with them or I think it's the featured musician. So I think if they have like loads of clarinet solos in it that they'll mention the guy who played the clarinet gotcha okay but yeah i I couldn't really find a lot of sort of background info 
on on the on the album, perhaps just because it's so new. But um, I'm not even a hundred percent sure it's complete. They might well release more music that jumps onto this album, but that is just this is where it stands as of today. Yeah, that that's just one of the one of the things of picking a artist that doesn't really release conventional albums. Indeed, what a modern world we live in. Um, but I agree with you, like Pomplamoose are somebody who I tend to watch through their YouTube work rather than listen to individually. And eight of the, I think eight of the nine songs are have videos on YouTube. Um, so I watched all of them. And I've got to say, it definitely kind of improved my appreciation just watching them play it. Um, particularly, I, I assume, Andy, you've watched the videos. I don't know if you have, Marco. But uh, I'm not really a big fan of harmonica generally. Harmonica is like a foot and a half long and is like double layered. I'm, I'm on board. I find that incredibly endearing. I find this album very pleasant listen. I think the instrumentation is often really nice. I think the overall just kind of sound, that French pop, is incredibly easy to listen to. But in the same breath, it, was, it also wasn't, super exciting and didn't really grab me at too many moments it became incredibly enjoyable background music but kind of background music nonetheless with the videos some of them had subtitles so a couple of songs i know what they're about and again that raised another one in my kind of esteem finding out the uh, some of the lyrics in some of the songs but of course they're all in french so i don't know them very good um yeah, so I'm pre- sort of prepared to be talked up or down, I think, but I'm kind of middling on this album just at the moment. Yeah, I picked it off one listen, I think. Um, yeah, I totally agree with most of that. It's incredibly easy listening. It is in no way challenging as an album. And yeah, background music is about right, but I super love the vibe of it. I, I don't know what to score it either. Like it's It's an album I would... In fact, I got bored of it by the end of the week. But I really enjoyed my time with it for the first <laughs> for the first few days, and yeah, the like musicianship I think is great. There's a few songs that stand out for me. Uh, we'll get onto later, uh, but yeah, I think that assessment is pretty pretty fair. I think the fact that it's half an hour long made it in a really easy listen. You can just pop it on, get a quick listen in, and then and then it was done. But yeah, uh, I know what you mean. What are you thinking, Marco? I'm really split on it. Really split. I have many thoughts and yet I've struggled to sort of gather them all together in a conclusion, to be honest. On the first listen, I agree. I generally enjoy the vibe. I like French pop music. It's pretty cool. And my initial thought was uh, because, as you say, because I had a sort of brief look myself and there's no real accreditation to the songwriters in the songs that are covers, which I think is the majority. And maybe a couple of originals, I'm not absolutely sure. I think they're all covers. Might be wrong, yeah. but I think they are all covers. But in listening through to it, before I realised it was covers, I was sort of like, well, this is a bit pastiche and lacking character. It just feels like they're trying to, you know, do an impression of this music which they obviously were because it's all covers. And I uh, I went through and several tracks I listened to 
well, I assume is the originals, which I found on Spotify. And there's a mix there, some of which I thought, well, this is way better. Obviously, it's got the advantage going for it of that they wrote the song. Um, but a couple of the covers are, I think, better than the originals. They brought a lot to it, and they're clearly very talented players. And, you know, it's it's Starbucks music, isn't it? It's proper coffee shop, like, you know, let's sit and have exactly. a nice little... Yeah, exactly. You know, it's not exciting, really, at all. Even though there's some really impressive kind of soloing and, you know, it's all very nice. And I always get split between this on one hand. Yeah, that's nice and pleasant and it's nice to have. And then on the other hand, it's like, well, you know, give me something else, you know. I wrote something almost exactly the same as what you said there, Mark, though it does sometimes border on pastiche. And as you say, being at their covers, I mean, of course, of course, it sort of is pastiche. But equally, like French pop music is not something I'm super familiar with. So I guess the kind of the safeness of it, I find a little bit, a little bit disappointing. But um, the pastichiness of it didn't totally rub me up the wrong way. As I say, it's not something I've delved into. I haven't heard what might be considered better French pop music uh, much. So I've not got a lot to compare it to. I think as well it depends on your expectations going into it. Like I'm well aware of how they record music. The recording process would have taken a few hours. I think with every cover, like they get people in and they, they kind of ask for that person's input, I guess, into the kind of style and then jam it out. And and for sure that kind of leaves a bit of a lack of depth, I think sometimes, because it just would, you you would just evolve little bits, I guess, like where there's little breaks and stuff. There might be a solo, but you kind of think you could have done more with this, but that is the, this is the nature of the beast, I guess. There's examples where they do do more with it. So uh, the second song, Le Copain d'Abor, mm-hmm. um, again, I listened to what I assume is the original of that, and it's got a nicer intro. And then it's got a guy singing and it's about four minutes long and it's quite monotonous and repetitive and they vibe it up a bit. It's a little tiny bit more energetic. And obviously they have the, uh, I was about to say Una Dos <laughs> dress, which is not the right language. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, they, they have the, yeah, <laughs> they have the kick in at the end where they do a nice little kind of clarinet Dixie like kind of jazz like thing and that's completely new um so more stuff like that would would be welcome as i say a couple of the covers they do nice spins on a couple of them are sort of closer to the originals and i guess what i struggle with is you know what what is the purpose of it is it just a bunch of session musicians saying you know here's some music that we like and we're going to put our little spin on it if so that's fine i guess I think like I don't know that that's a bad thing, but equally I wonder, you know, what it what it's adding to the uh, the musical world. If that, it's bringing light to those songs and like getting more people interested in that genre, that's good. If I it helps, say. I think it is entirely that, and I think it's not session musicians doing that. I think it's the singer doing that. Like I watched a little thing of um, them talking about the release of this album, and yeah, she basically said that like she just 
I think it's a passion project, essentially. Like she thinks. Well, that these, play then. Yeah. I think that uh, she thinks that these are all like great songs that nobody's listened mm-hmm. to, and so wanted to release, wanted to record a load of them, and so people could hear those songs. Well, they've just gone up another point. If I keep going, <laughs> and I'm, gen- I'm genuinely not trying to talk you up because I, I picked this entirely on the basis that like it was easy listening and it was just something that I wanted to listen to and it didn't challenge me like trying to listen to contemporary jazz and struggling through it did. Well, I'll mention my favourite thing about the album as a whole, uh, which is the backing vocals, which I absolutely love. Yeah, always nice, aren't they? But they're they're they are, but in this case in particular, they've got a very well, I was gonna say unique. I mean, it's it's sort of this massive oldie style kind of I don't know, almost early Disney film like quality to them, but obviously in a modern recording setting. I I just love that stuff. It sounds great. And again, none of that is in the original song, so that's all being added and yeah. Dig that. Personally, I loved, I loved every time there was a clarinet solo. And oh, the, the jazz and, clarinet was just the trump- rad. The trumpet as well, and occasionally the little muted trumpet, which I think is uh, really hard to utilise well. It usually sounds dreadful, but the odd song, it really just, worked for me. It's but yeah, very clar- much in its setting, isn't it? The clarinet solos were just... I loved yeah, the I, jazz, jazz clarinet. Agreed. I enjoyed those as well, but they're kind of what you would expect. Of you know? course, yeah. I just think the, the backing vocals were... a a new element for me. I'll be honest. I don't think this is a million miles away from the Stereo Lab album we did. I mean, you know, I think there's parallels was... there for sure. There were parallels in days like French pop. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a pretty close parallel. But also the production. I, I think the the faults of the Stereo Lab are kind of faults with this as well. The bonus is there's that it's way shorter. Yeah, my, I, that, see, I strongly disagree on that because my faults with the Stereo Lab is that I couldn't remember a single song. I can't after, remember a single after, song from this one, after <laughs> to be honest. Right. To, In like, terms I, of melodies, I haven't listened to it quite enough, maybe, but, you know, being as though these are songs she's handpicked because she loves them, I'll be honest, at least half of them, I think, are fairly generic, underwhelming songs. There's no, like... There's a there's a couple of moments, there's a couple of nice melodies, but they're just kind of they're breezy, you know, they don't particularly stick in my head. And that doesn't that's not necessarily a bad thing. We I keep changing my mind about this, whether it matters, whether something's memorable or not. I don't think it is ultimately, but nevertheless, it I don't find them that memorable. No. I think it's in context, isn't it? I think if you if you're aiming to make something very commercial and poppy and it doesn't stick in your head and i think that's a, an abject failure i don't think that's what this target is it is french pop but it's obviously not going for a uh, an absolute mass appeal but i agree with you my my biggest drawback is it's kind of it just never peaks into anything particularly exciting like it does become a bit of a mass and there are a couple of songs i pick out that i, that I prefer but one of them is based on what the translation of the lyrics are not really the Necessarily the song itself. Um, Which track? Uh, Lasse Beton. All oh, right, yeah, I really like that song as well. Which I think is, four, uh, four, five, six are my my favorite. I was going to pick up on that when you said that about the lyrics because uh, I have watched some of the videos, but not. I didn't really pay attention to the lyrics. I kind of I get 
I presume that they're all like a lot of them are kind of nostalgic longing. Um, do say fans is exactly like, that. It is yeah, a, but I would, I would figure they all are. Like, I, I don't know that I necessarily need to even hear the lyrics to kind of get the the vibe of what the lyrics would give you. Ah, well, Lassay Beton is about a man who keeps getting into fights, losing, and then has to give up an item of clothing. So okay, he likes not Caesar, what I would have guessed. Sees a guy's boots, <laughs> likes them, gets in a fight, has to give him his boots because he loses. And then a guy comes in the bar, sees his jacket, likes it, he fights him, he loses, gives him his jacket. And then the song just ends that he's cold and miserable. And that's it. <laughs> and I really liked it. Lovely. That's pretty yeah. good. I just think like, um, yeah, four, five, and six are my my favorite three. And I think they're like quite different songs across the three of them. Like, I don't think it's a an album that like obviously there are similarities. It definitely works as an album. There are similarities like between the songs, but uh, I agree with you about six, Le, Le Chanson de Maxence. Yeah, that's just a like gorgeous little ballad, isn't it? Yeah, like, super nice. That's nice. Um, and then track four's got that huge, like, that big, like, super busy clarinet riff at the start of it that comes back a few times. Uh, every time that riff comes back around, it, like, draws me in. And then, yeah, track five uh, is, like, almost a... I don't know, it's got like little Western vibes to it as well. Mm, banjo on the go. Yeah. Like, I, I don't think it's a, it, it is definitely an album that is is kind of doing one thing, I guess. But I do think it moves away from it a couple of times and gives a bit of interest. And I think in most of the songs as well, there's the odd moment in there, be it like, it, it's track one or two where there's just a real nice, like, chord progression into the chorus every time. And every mm. time it sort of, like my ear, I think it's track two every time. Like I don't actually love the song, but every time that chord comes in, I think like that's a cool little, little chord into the chorus. Yeah. Again, I'm, I, it's another thing that I'm defending more than it's worth. <laughs> my score's going to be lower than my positive comments. <laughs> I agree. It's, un, it's unfair to say that these songs are like cookie-cuttered. You know, that they are following a formula. Because you're right to say there is variation within the songs, but also as a kind of an overall sound. I guess it comes in those moments where I'm not particularly paying attention or probably doing something else, as, we, as we've all said. And there are no real points that I feel like it pulls me out. It, it kind of grabs me and says, listen to this shit. Um, it just remains incredibly pleasantly in the background. I think it's partially her voice as well, which is... Fine, I think it's a bit bland personally, because again, I, I you know, should it matter? I don't know. It, it matters to me because I listened to the originals, and um, the originals have far more character. Like I actually prefer like there's a couple of Charles Tremé songs who I'd never heard of, and it, it, in fairness, it's achieved the thing of like actually, yeah, like it's brought my attention to that music, and I actually quite liked it. But his his versions have more character to them. Like, you know, and I kind of prefer the production, like the old school, you know, it just sounds great in a different way. Yeah, I, I you know, it's that it's that kind of thing. There's I get this a lot when there's just a bunch of like really good musicians just playing stuff, but to me it just lacks like uniqueness or character or that little bit people. of adventure. Like Yeah, just like, you know. It's great to be a great musician. Good on them. But like, 
there's loads of great musicians out there. Like the ones that tend to be memorable and stick out to me are the ones that sound like that particular musician. They bring something of themselves to that part. And I guess in this case, then, then to me, they're not really. It just sounds like, you know, the, by its very nature, it's cover songs. It's it's an attempt to, uh, you know, a passion project, whatever, fair play. But I just don't, again, I'm so split on it. I just don't know what I think. It's a, it's a real difficult one. I don't necessarily disagree with that. But again, I just think that that's a product of the of what it is. Could you not make the argument to an extent that you could almost get any group of like jazz musicians or great musicians be like, right, here's nine songs like from the 1940s or whatever. Go and do a cover of them. And like, what's the difference really? Well, I think that's right. I think that's entirely what they did. <laughs> like, that's my point. Like, I think uh, so. I don't think that that is a criticism of the musicians. Like, in fact, I, I remember saying it when we were doing the like fantasy band thing that my backup bassist was a bassist that played with Pompalous a lot of the time. Don't know if he plays mm. on this album or not, but he also happened to play on Black Star. Like, <laughs> they're they're musicians who. I've done zero research to all this, but I presume I've played on like phenomenal stuff and have a style and everything else. But the fact is they're session musicians who have been pulled in for one day to record four songs. And I've done that like to like a quite like high caliber level, but probably without any sort of import or, you know, they, they've just turned up and played the songs. If you spent longer with them, could they do something more interesting with it? Yeah, 100%, but that that's kind of not what Pomplamoose are. Got anything else, Will? I don't think so. Not Nothing that you guys haven't said. Yeah, my overarching thing is, is that it was it's well made. It's incredibly inoffensive. It's very pleasant to listen to. But I guess for the most part, I'm no longer looking for pleasant. Kind of got that in my repertoire. So it's sort of slight lack of invention. It's slight lack of excitement. Is 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 a is a bit of a drawback for me. Um, but yeah, not sure I've got much more else to throw in the mix. Do some scoring. Do some scoring. Some quick sure. scoring. Uh, well, I went first last time, so not doing it again. I don't mind going first. I wish I hadn't said that because I haven't 100 percent decided. Ah, fuck it. I'll exactly. go seven. I'll go seven. I would have gone six point five if the old uh, if the old half marks are in there, but yeah, that like it loses a little bit for being covers. I in fact I just agree with everything that was said. Like it is incredibly easy listening. And I guess that's the purpose of it, kind of. Like, they've not tried to reinvent these songs. They've just tried to do new versions of them and shine a bit of light on songs that she clearly loves. And I think they're really good versions of them. And probably three of the songs I really like and the other six are fine. Don't dislike them. There's moments of interest. But yeah, six feels a bit harsh because yeah, first few listens through ours. That's really like the vibe. So push it to a seven. Cool beans. Are you still still thinking, Marco? 
I've got a figure in my head now. No, I can go if you want. Go for it. Uh, five. Um, Straight berry. Yeah. I guess, like like I said, I, just a number of the songs I actually don't think are that remarkable. And yeah, you, I said the exact same thing as you did a few weeks ago about the the pleasant thing. I think I I know what pleasant I like, and uh, I don't particularly need more of it. And if I do want to listen to French pop, I'll go and listen to the original French pop. But fair play to them. I mean, you know, it's cool that I don't have a problem with them doing it. I just don't actually see that there's a need for it. Fair, fair. Well, I'm going to come bang smack in the middle and give it a six. Pretty much the same reasoning. Um, I think I've kind of spelled out <laughs> my, my position on it. I think it does what it's aiming to do. I think what it's aiming to do isn't that exciting to me, but I think it kind of nails what it's going for. So I think it's successful. Yeah, and I enjoyed my time with it. It being half an hour is, you know, handy. Good. Cool. Okay, so with that aside, we now move to our last section, which is this week, again, a top five list. Andy, your top five list was top five documentaries. Um, As I've mentioned already, documentaries are not my strong suit. Uh, So I'm worried my list is a bit crap, but nevertheless, let us away. Does anyone want to volunteer as going first? I would be happy to go first purely because I've only written down five. Now yeah. I suspect one or two of them may appear on other people's. Okay. Similar I... to you. Yeah, it's it's kind of mainline documentaries for the most part. Okay, okay. then Marco, take us away, buddy. Cool. All right. Well, I'm going to start with the dubious one because I don't know how acceptable this would be, but ultimately it is a documentary and it is on disc as an extra. So I don't know. We didn't set the criteria that it had to be released as a standalone. No, um, anything's fine. I'll, I'll go with it. It's a documentary, which is uh, The Making of the Lord of the Rings, which um, in 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 point of fact, there's, there's three of them, surprisingly enough, because there's three Lord of the Rings films. And I think they're all about as long as each of the corresponding films. And I have watched all of them. <laughs> and uh, I love them. They're just, uh, I think, uh, I find it fascinating. Obviously, I like those films, but I've actually had increased enthusiasm for them after watching the documentaries, which are just really in-depth, behind-the-scenes filmmaking with loads of cool, like, cast stuff, like, you know, behind-the-scenes and how they built the sets and each individual unique department of a film, like the construction of a film they go into, whether it be like, you know, set designers or like costumers, like, you know, hair and makeup, all of this, it delves into all of it. And um, yeah, just, just absolutely remarkable stuff. And yeah, some of the actors come across really, really well. Like basically, if you watch any of them, it's just like, okay, well, Vigo Mortensen is clearly one of the the nicest, coolest people you could ever come across. Yeah, I think it says something. It has to go on the list purely, you know, we're probably talking nine hours, 10 hours total, watched through all of it, and I could have happily done like 10 more hours, no problem. 
think you've probably easily got the longest single documentary. So, bravo. And <laughs> um, I saw a thing with Elijah Wood the other day, and he was talking about a bit of The Lord of the Rings, where what period of time was completely washed out, and they filmed something that then they didn't return to for a year. Mm-hmm. And that idea of kind of being in New Zealand for such a long time, yeah, it being so epic, having all the costumes and all of the different camera trickeries about their height and et cetera. I can imagine Absolutely. it being really cool. I haven't seen it, but I can imagine being like into that for sure. I think that's a cool pick. Okay. Well, I'll go in for my number five and I hope you find this acceptable. It's a slightly dubious pick and it's because it is, it's a mockumentary really, but it is a mockumentary that despite its premise, I think sticks closely to documentary filmmaking. And that is, in particular, season one of American Vandal, a documentary made by school kids set in a school trying to solve the mystery of who carved, if memory serves, 27 penises on teachers' cars. Now, and, uh, I'm going to be honest with you early on. There is no way on God's green earth that's a documentary. I mean, I they're, mean... Fi- they're, they're actors <laughs> playing fictional characters. In a documentary in a... style. <laughs> yeah. But... <laughs> I'm usually pretty free and easy, but I mean, I feel like you've hit none of the criteria of a documentary there. However, it, right. is, it is great. So I've got a lot of on, other... Carry on talking about it. No, leave it I... in there. All right, fair enough. Well, I mean, what I liked about it is how much it did stick to its, its documentary style, even if, as you've pointed out, it is fictitious. Um, but the way it kind of moves through and uh, explains the story and how the exposition comes about, um, all of that stuff, it feels like a genuine documentary, barring the fact that the subject matter is ludicrous and all the characters in it are sort of ludicrous as well. Uh, so yeah, all right. I accept it's not strictly a documentary, but I really wanted to or put it, it in, so. or at all. But it is great. I would support Will by saying that clearly a great number of documentaries feature a high number of staged sequences and stuff to suit the filmmaker's aim. No, and I'm, fi- I'm fine with that. Like a documentary, um, you are telling the story that you want to tell. So. It's exactly. just that, it's just that they, do, they don't they don't usually contain actors playing characters that are also fictitious and no, playing fair. and playing events <laughs> that are also fictitious. There is no. there is nothing around American Vandal that is based on any sort of reality. School's probably real. <laughs> yeah, the building might be real. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's it. I put it. I put it at a number five, um, <laughs> thinking there might be a little trouble with that one. But there you go. I'm usually pretty easy to allow anything as well. Like you could have come up with a series, or anyway, that's a good pick. But you know, I love sports documentaries. I've always included one out and out sports documentary, which I'm going to throw in at number five. There are a couple in my list that are around sports, but aren't really sports documentaries. But yeah, number five, I'm going to go The Test, which is a cricket documentary. Um, I think there's two really good cricket documentaries of the last like decade, uh, The Test and The Edge. And both of them, I mean, you've got to be interested in documentaries in the first place, but 
I think the kind of human story behind them is so compelling that it doesn't really matter whether you like the sport or not. In fact, the sport, I don't know, it's, it's not the focus of them. Like, the test is about, there was a huge scandal in cricket a few years ago where, like, a young kid playing for Australia used, like, sandpaper on the ball to try and rough up one side of the ball, which is completely against the rules. And it turns out that, like, his captain and, like, vice-captain was involved in convincing this kid to do it. And the documentary builds with, like, it's basically the aftermath of that. I think it's super interesting. Like, there was loads of criticism of, like, the way that Australia played cricket and that, like, they weren't very sporting and that nobody around the rest of the world liked them. And so they try and change the entire, like, ethos of the team. And then quite early on, you kind of realise that it's all right being nice and professional to everyone, but you still need to have a bit of, like, fighting spirit and grit to it. And so it's them trying to find the balance and all the characters, I think, are super interested in it. Like, new new captain, Tim Payne, and new... Like there was a new coach afterwards, the coach stepped down. Uh, it also includes they play England during the period that the the series is on. And it includes one of the best matches I think I've ever seen, uh, where Ben Stokes like single-handedly wins the match for England at the Australian perspective of watching that is like there's one point where like somebody like drops a catch and Justin Langer, the Australian coach, like kicks a bin down some stairs and then the camera's following him as he has to like go down the stairs to go and pick up all the rubbish. Although it's just incredibly sad and incredibly satisfying as an England fan. But yeah, I just think it's great. It's really good. It's, it's such a like little insight into like the characters behind the scenes, even if you don't care about the sport. Cool. I think for the sports ones, as you say, it tends to be the human stories, which is the interesting bit. The actual sport is just there as the vehicle. Um, the back, and I haven't the backdrop, se- yeah. I haven't seen this. Um, based on your description, I think I'd probably enjoy it. I think I'd get something from it. But cricket's not my sport. Yeah. Same. Although, if The Edge was a documentary about the U2 guitarist... <laughs> Using his guitar as a cricket bat and getting sunburnt because he refused to re- wear anything other than his beanie. I'm in. Yeah, you watch an hour and a half of that. <laughs> Why did uh, Bono fall off the stage? Do tell. And got too close to the edge. <laughs> Beautiful. I think that's enough of that, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Number four. Uh, number four is a uh, Grizzly Man, the Werner Herzog documentary about Timothy Treadwell. Obvious pick, but I think it's a, a great documentary about a really interesting subject, and uh, the way it's put together is is great. It's it's got cool stuff going on with it as well. Like I think um, Richard Thompson does like the soundtrack, for example. Um which is pretty cool. It's like the guitarist with a, get this wrong now, I want to say Fairport Convention. I don't know, but I have listened to some Richard Thompson. Like, yeah, it's, 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 stuff. as have I, and I quite like some of it. Anyway. Nice, um, nice folk. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but yeah, I mean, this one is is as much about Werner Herzog as it is about Timothy Treadwell. He just brings so much character to it, but Treadwell is a super interesting character study as well. Like, it's a mental story, ultimately. A guy who's obsessed with bears and spends his life trying to be one. And obviously, uh, well, spoiler, um, <laughs> essentially gets eaten by them. Um, and there's like a really kind of standout scene where they've got an audio recording of it and Werner Herzog, it shows him listening to the audio recording and he's just like, yeah, we're not, we're not playing that. Um, yeah, just a top documentary, which was the idea of the list. So that's what I did here. <laughs> I think I watched it with you years and years ago. Um, I do remember bits of it. Like, I think it is that there are bits that really like stick in the memory. Um, but I do remember thinking the whole film feels like a punchline. Like he spends all this time, like I'm integrated with the bears. Like I'm one of mm-hmm. them now. And in the end they just decide, yeah, you're meat. <laughs> you're meat to us. And uh, as grim as it is for him, um, it felt like, yeah, of course that's, that, that's what would happen. Of course that's the end result. Yeah. And Herzog's always had this thing about, like, you know, man and nature, basically. And, you know, I guess his point in that one was, well, a fairly obvious one, really. I don't know that there was any massive nature commentary. It was basically just, yeah, like, bears are a... Nature's cruel, man. (laughs) Yeah. Bears are a vicious animal. Probably don't go and sleep with them. Okay. Um, for my number four is a film I've got to admit I haven't watched for ages, um, but I remember really enjoying it. And it was called My Kid Could Paint That. I think it came out around 2007. It was a documentary about a four-year-old girl who supposedly painted these sort of um, immense abstract works that were garnering the attention of the art uh, media and galleries and etc. And um, as the documentary goes on, I don't remember if it ever actually reveals a conclusion. I'm not sure it does, but the strong suggestion is that it's either both or one of her parents creating the paintings and passing them off as hers because as a painter in their own right, they never kind of found success, but using her as a vehicle as some sort of prodigy, they kind of get the success. And it starts off, I think with most good documentaries or documentaries that I enjoy start off as one thing and then become something else. And it appears at least to start off as just a, um, a documentary about this girl, about this art prodigy and, you know, the paintings that she makes and then takes this uh, sort of devious turn and becomes something completely different. So it's been, it's been some time since I did watch it, but it sticks in the memory. It sounds immediately compelling to me, and I assume it would just get into the issue of like, well, if she didn't paint the art and it was one of the parents, does that change the value of the art? Like, you know. Absolutely, it does, yeah. And I think, I don't think it's this film specifically, but I think another Channel 4 documentary actively accused them of fraud, like laid it at their door and said, we think this is kind of bullshit, basically. And I think this documentary came afterwards. I'm not sure whether the Channel 4 one ever got to air, but they pick up on that kind of accusation. And of course it is, because the price is based on the fact that a four-year-old did it. That does sound up my street. I remember hearing about it years ago and 
I've never got yeah, to it, unfortunately. Pretty old now, but yeah, yeah. just uh, when, when I started making this list, it was one of the first that kind of popped up as a as a thought. Mm-hmm. So I ran with it. Yeah. That's it. That's my number four. Cool. Uh, number four, I'm going to go with Free Solo, which is a documentary about climbing. Kind of sports, but not really. Uh, I watched the Dawn Wall, which is the other famous climbing documentary of the last like ten years this week, which is also superb. But um, Free Solo, I really like because it's essentially about a guy who's trying to uh, free solo climb El Capitan. The actual filming of it, I find super interesting because obviously the people who filmed him are incredibly good climbers. <laughs> because otherwise they wouldn't be able to get up there to get to him. Um, and it's Alex uh, Honold. Honold, I think. Uh, the guy climbs it, and his, it's a character thing as much as anything else. Like, his character is super interesting. At one point, they, can't remember the actual term, but they basically do, like, a brain scan on him. And um, he just essentially doesn't have the receptors that feel any sort of fear. Like, he, he just doesn't... Like, he's the first person... He's a superhero. Yeah, <laughs> kind of. But he's also a dick. Like, he's not mm. particularly likable throughout it. Like, he, he has a girlfriend who pops up in the documentary, like, fairly often. And she's obviously... Like... I mean, with, with being his girlfriend, as you would expect, like she sounds like she's a bit of an adventurer, but like there is a limit <laughs> and she's just terrified for him. And his kind of uh, just absolutely obsessive attention to detail on his like planning of it and uh, like he's climbed bits of the route. I don't know how many times like it's mm-hmm. it's obviously something that you're nobody in the world is capable of just turning up and doing like it's one of the like most difficult like cliff edges in the world to climb and the amount of like time that he spends on it um yeah it's it's incredibly impressive in terms of the making of the documentary the actual feat that he achieves uh, but it's also a super interesting look into his character. Again, sounds very compelling. Not a subject I might have picked out myself, but... I've seen both of them, and I agree, I like both of them. I struggle to remember which was which, but I'm assuming from what you've said and the title that um, I think the Dawn Wall slightly appealed more to me because it had sort of the camaraderie of, like, there was a slightly nice, more experienced climber and the, you know... yeah. The slightly less one and it just them being up there together sharing this experience and it's just it is absolutely bonkers like you don't think of it at all you're just like oh these climbers they'll just shoot up there in a in a few hours kind of thing and they're there for days or weeks just like literally camping on a bloody you know <laughs> tent on the like hundreds of meters up this wall with certain death below it goes a lot into the relationship, character. doesn't it, as well? Like, yeah. his relationship with his wife or girlfriend or whatever. And, yeah, I remember, I remember yeah, both of them are, are really good, to be fair. Yeah. Um. Okay, uh, I'll bounce off that. I'll be quick with this one because it's been a long time. Uh, but it's a slightly similar theme, Touching the Void. 
Um, have either of you seen this? No. I've not, but I kind of remember it when it came out. Yeah, it's from 2003 uh, by Kevin McDonald, who's directed some, you know, normal, like, fictional films as well. Um, it's basically about two climbers. I think it's Everest. I could be wrong. I should have researched this. It's not. I've just got it up here, and apparently it was the Peruvian Andes. But basically, one of them breaks their leg um, at, around the top, and the other one basically has to go back without him, and it's like a race against time, whether this other one will survive and all of this. And it's, uh, from what I recall, it's got obviously a lot of talking heads things with the uh, actual real people but it's basically completely fictionally recreated as a kind of movie alongside it. And yeah, it was just super effective. Like it's difficult because I don't remember a tremendous amount about it other than the overall feeling of, okay, that's, that's a really cool film with a really interesting moving story. Um, at the end of the day, it was like 18 years ago. So I haven't watched it since it came out, but I would recommend if you, stumble across it it's well worth a watch right i'll do my number three i'll be dead quick with it because this is a bit of a self-indulgent option i think there's a film that probably doesn't appeal to many people outside of the of the interest subject and it is indie game the movie from 2012 uh it was a documentary that followed four kind of indie developers uh ed mcmillan and tony tommy reffens who made Super Meat Boy, Phil Fish, who made Fez, and Jonathan Blow, who made Braid. And they were, I think they're broadly credited for being kind of the first few people who kickstarted the indie uh, game platform as it is now. And it follows them creating the game and launching it and their various levels of success and toxic fandom all of those kind of subjects, I guess, about uh, the modern world and social media that we live in. Again, it's a bit self-indulgent because it's just a subject that I am interested in. I wonder how good a documentary is or how interesting it is outside of that subject matter. Probably not best place to say. Um, but I enjoyed it very much. And that's my number three. If it helps, I've seen it and I've already played one of those games and I thought it was uh, super interesting. Just a look behind oh, the scenes of a world that you have zero idea of. Indeed, yeah. Yeah, number three for me is, this was the one that I was slightly worrying wouldn't quite fit the criteria, but after you're on number five pick, well, I feel fine about it. You're my biggest critic. <laughs> <laughs> number three, uh, Man on Wire. Uh, from 2008, it's about Philippe Petit's uh, 1974, um, like free walk across a wire between the Twin Towers buildings in New York, and uh, it's really good. I mean, the reason that I was like doubting as to whether it's fully a documentary is that like it is a. I've seen it listed as a documentary or just an indie film because there is loads of like recreated footage uh, to the point where sometimes they intersperse. I mean, you're not quite sure what is real footage and what isn't, but it kind of plays out like a heist film. 
it's not just the idea of him walking across. He doesn't have permission to walk across buildings. So the planning, <laughs> like I think they, I can't remember how much they said. It was like a, like an astronomical amount of equipment that they needed to get up there, and the planning for all the other people that got involved to be doing, like you know, things like <laughs> essentially making sure it was safe for him to do it. And again, another like obsessive character, which is yeah, just something that I love. Like he. He's a quirky character as well. Yeah, no kidding. Like yeah. He's he's definitely quite compelling. Yeah, I I liked it. I didn't love it. I did. I have to it. say. Yeah, I liked it quite a bit, and I agree with you. I think my favourite bits though were the almost heist like bits. Like if memory serves, I think some of the floors were unfinished, mm. and that's how they kind of managed to you know, set up their base and, and hide things amongst the kind of work gear that was up there. Well, and, uh, a... Yeah, those bits were like... He has a guy working cool. for him, doesn't he, Who's, um, who works in the building? It's years since I've seen it, but... Uh, yeah, a guy who, like, works yeah, in the Twin Towers on one, one floor who he, like, uses to uh, try and, like, sneak things into the building and stuff like that. Okay. Anyway. That's my number three. Cool. Lovely job, Link. Good choice. I'll be nice and quick with number two. It's uh, some kind of monster. The uh, Metallica making of Saint Anger film. Which, yeah, I absolutely loved watching. It was so fascinating. It's, it's you know, ultimately, a good documentary is a good documentary regardless of the subject. But... It helps if it's tremendously, if it's a subject that I'm interested in. And the making of music and being in a band, I don't really like Metallica, to be honest. I'm not really too bothered by them, but it didn't make a, a single bit of difference. I found every element of it absolutely fascinating. Like the musical construction and all the studio stuff was all the interpersonal like politics between the band and like everything. Like the characters within the band are all like really individual and interesting, like Lars Ulrich just seems like a bit of a cock. And I thought James Hetfield comes across really well, but by all accounts, he was like a you know complete alcoholic and everything. But it's just, yeah. I mean, you know, anytime something like this gets mentioned, it's just like people say spinal tap. And it's not that at all. That would be Anvil, the story of Anvil. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, um, does exist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think it was just on TV or something like once, like many years ago, and I just saw a few minutes and thought, oh, that's, that's interesting, and I was super into it. Okay, I'll be sharpish with my number two as well then. Uh, it is my sports documentary choice, and it is Drive to Survive, the Netflix Formula One documentary. Drive to Survive is a documentary that has so far followed the last three seasons of Formula One, and it's currently filming its fourth it's a good in-depth look. Again, I mean, saying the same things about all the documentaries, but behind the scenes is something I didn't know about. Um, but the main reason why this one sticks above some of the other sports documentaries I have watched is that it's genuinely got me very interested in Formula One and the characters involved, the drivers, the principals, the teams. Now that I know a bit more about it, it has elevated my interest uh, quite a lot. And 
as you were saying, Andy, you don't really have to be interested in the sport to enjoy a documentary. Um, but this one has had that kind of opposite effect where it's made me interested in the sport. Yeah. And that's and it's good. <laughs> so that's why it's my number two. Is it my number two? Your yes. number two, buddy. Uh, number two, I'm going with 13th uh, from 2016. Uh, I don't have much to say about it, to be honest. I watched it uh, after the George Floyd death and I watched it entirely on the basis of trying to educate myself a little bit about like African-American history. And it certainly did that. It's incredibly, uh, incredibly moving and incredibly sad in bits and definitely gave me an idea of how, like how America is formed to be the country that it is. And I think it also kind of reflects on the rest of the world as well. Yeah, I think it's incredibly, incredibly well written. Yeah, incredibly moving and very educational. Agreed. It's a very powerful documentary. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen it. I wasn't familiar with it, to be honest, but it does sound interesting. It definitely sounds like something you have to be in the right kind of mood to, uh, yeah, and a more right. educational thing perhaps than... It's heavy going, do you yeah. imagine? Good call. Yeah. All right. Uh, my number one, to the surprise of no one um, who knows me, is uh, Everything or Nothing, the untold story of 007. <laughs> lovely stuff which has featured in this podcast because I played a clip from it with good old Timothy Dalton talking um, I but remember, it's, yeah. yeah but yeah I you know obviously it's, it's huge bias it's a subject that uh, I'm very passionate about but you know I've seen a lot of James Bond's documentaries frankly and a lot of um it doesn't just because it's James Bond. It's not like I think it's good. Far from it. Like this is just an exceptional documentary, and I think even people who were not in the least bit bothered about James Bond would get a lot out of it. The way it's put together is phenomenal. The editing is fantastic. Um, it helps, of course, that it's got you know John Barry wall to wall. But it's it's got so much emotion and like story to it, which for a film that basically just chronicles from Ian Fleming to the modern Bond films, like covering, you know, 40 odd years or whatever it is. There's loads of interesting like through lines throughout it, which evolve and like there's good guys and bad guys. And the only person notable in their absence is Sean Connery, who's the only sort of mainstay who isn't interviewed directly. And yet he's still obviously a huge part of the film and there's still some really kind of moving stuff with him involved with it. He's arguably also presented as a bad guy for large parts of it. It's just fascinating. Um, and I, as I say, I would urge anyone to watch it. I just think it's a the best made documentary that I've seen. George Lazenby's story of how he became Bond alone is better than pretty much anything in life. It's just <laughs> hilarious. Good. It's, it's fairly, so good. Fairly bold call. Uh. <laughs> Honestly, watch it. J 
just watch that. I I bet that clip would be just be available on its own on YouTube. Like just watch that, if nothing else. <laughs> Will do. Will cow. Good choice. Uh, my number one uh, is also from 2007. Maybe a good year for me in documentaries. Uh, but is the most hated family in America. There's a BBC documentary by Louis Theroux following the family at the Westboro uh, Baptist Church, who are essentially a kind of sort of fundamentalist Christian organized, well, family, really, um, who are hugely homophobic, tends to be their main, their main thrust. And uh, I think they were in the news quite a lot as being uh, going to things like the burial of uh, military personnel and waving flags around uh, with many uh, homophobic slurs on them. To be frank, I think this is one of my favorite of Louis Theroux's things, but I think it's because of Louis Theroux that I like it so much. His sort of deadpan innocence about how he asks questions that you know he's intelligent enough to know that they're like barbed questions, but the way he asks them just seems to disarm people. And I think within this particular documentary, you have like the, the top tier, the leaders who are completely invested. And then you have some children as well who are kind of, this is the only world they know. And uh, the way that's kind of Louis Theroux explores their experience, I think is really fascinating. And it was then followed up by two um, sort of sequel documentaries, the last of which was called Surviving America's Most Hated Family, which is about two of the young girls grew up and left and were effectively disowned by the family. But it follows kind of their story afterwards. That's um, a big fan of Louis Theroux and a lot of what he does. But I remember watching this and it really, really uh, got under my skin and stuck in my head for quite a long time afterwards. I know other people have gone back and done other documentaries, including Keith Allen, weirdly enough. But Louis Theroux was the uh, was the was the best. But yeah, my number one is the most hated family in America. Great pick. Thank you. Uh, my number one is from 2017, and it is Icarus. Uh, so the documentary starts off. It's a guy called Brian Fogel, who is a He's a documentary maker, but he's an amateur cyclist. And he kind of, essentially, I think he wants to see how much he can, like, cheating aids him because he's an amateur. He's not been drugs tested, so he can take steroids or, or whatever it is. And he wants to see how well he can perform in, like I say amateur, but he's he's competing at a relatively high amateur level. But the documentary just goes completely off the rails. I don't want to give everything away if you've not seen it, but the documentary ends up being a completely different story than the one that he was intending to make, um, basically because of the people that he gets involved with. And the story itself is a like way, way, way bigger story than the one that he was intending to tell. And it involves like like the doping scandal in Russia and things like that. And yeah, it's, it's, I think it's incredibly well-made and um, yeah, it's a complete freak accident, I guess, in terms of him making it. And I don't know whether, I don't know, I'm sure he got a huge amount of success because of it, but it seems like the actual process of it 
not the making of the documentary, but the events of it were probably quite uh, incredibly difficult to deal with throughout his life. So I don't know whether he enjoyed the process or not, but it it was, yeah, yeah. And you couldn't make that documentary. It's like I don't think you could have set just out, accidental art set out to make it. Yeah, it just every all the pieces fell into place in creating great art. I guess. Uh, it's yeah, I was absolutely blown away the first time I saw it, and I watched it again like a year later because it, it's just superb. Yeah, it's a, it's a good pick. Like I've not seen it, of course, but it's a good pick for that very reason, and that I think that encapsulates what a do- good documentary uh, filmmaker would be doing if they're like you know, kind of filming a subject or like something in the current time and things are changing then obviously anyone worth their soul is gonna like you know be like I, do you know what this is happening this is actually like more this, interesting this is or a better this like, is the yeah, story yeah this is a better so, story than what i had planned so gonna roll exactly yeah top stuff yeah great stuff next week we are having guest choices from uh, returning guest character sam is a character not a full person and his choices are the 1988 film akira the album discovery by daft punk and the top five is top five most inspirational animations well that's all from us at screen and needle i hope you join us next week we'll talk about another film another album and another top five list bye